Hey everyone, welcome to episode 75 of Tumble Vision. This is your co-host, Heather Gold, and today we are going to be speaking with social computing scientist and professor, Liz Lawley. Uh, with me are my wonderful co-hosts, Deb Schultz. Deb, what do you want to get into tonight? Uh, I totally want to get into the difference between pseudonymity and anonymity online. Damn, big words. It is a smart uh, uh, show, but sometimes we explain it for people like me who can't follow the words. Kevin, what, what do you want to talk about today? Um, there was lots of different stuff talking about um, how ideas spread online and influence this week, so I want to talk about some of that. Yes, which, by the way, everyone, keep an eye out. We're trying to come to South by Southwest to persuade everyone that influence is bullshit, just to, just to tip our hand. And Liz Lolly, what what is your passion? What would you like to talk about with us? So my passion is about layering um, games and fun on top of day-to-day activities so that to make them more social and more engaging. Oh, the life less disconnected. We can only all hope that it's a better time for all of us. So join us, uh, won't you? Listen in. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode number 75. Our guest this week is Liz Lolly, professor of interactive games and media, as well as the director of the Lab for Social Computing at RIT, or the Rochester Institute of Technology. I'm one of your co-hosts, Deb Schultz, sitting in gray, cold, foggy summer San Francisco, along with my other co-host, Kevin Mark. Say hi, Kev. Hi there. I'm in um, warm, sunny, um, glowing San Jose. Yeah, see, that's the beauty of Northern California. You can be 20 minutes away from, 20 miles away from each other in different weather. And Liz, where are you hanging out this this week? I am in Rochester, which is where I usually am, um, although I'll be in Philadelphia next week. I, you know, Philadelphia in August, what could be more fun, right? But uh, the weather here is actually spectacular, so I have no complaints. Yes, you have to enjoy it when you can when you live in Rochester, correct? Indeed. Indeed. And our third co-host is Heather Gold, who is on her way, hopefully, to a strong Ethernet connection to the web. And I just want to say uh, you welcome to Tomo Vision. It's where our human and our tech selves intersect. Uh, Tomo Vision is a weekly salon-style podcast about how to connect and create a world that puts people, humans, at the center of business, tech, and culture. That means having the tech work for us. And each week we explore the various dimensions of tumbling with smart folks who are creating this new world, like our guest this week, Liz Lolly. And tumbling, uh, for those who want to know more, can check out our website. But very quickly, it comes from a Yiddish word, which means to tumble, which means to make noise. And tumblers were hired at weddings to get people to dance and also more recently were comedians in the Borscht Belt who both got to know the guests during the week and then included um, the guests in the show itself, so thereby breaking that their, the audience wall. So how do, you colla- how do you answer, how do you collaborate in the networked age? How do you run things when life is not a bunch of command and control hierarchies? We like to say you tumble. So every week we start off the show with a couple of minutes about what's going on in the world of tumbling or social software or the web. And this week, 
unfortunately, my hard drive borked, so I wasn't able to keep <laughs> up with that with as much news as usual. But I know that Kevin has put a bunch of great links in our show notes. So, Kev, what have you been on top of this week? I know there's going to be something on Google Plus, uh, oh, right? Yes. Well, and we, I know, we'll save that uh, one for last and then, then, and then go through some of the other things first, I think. Yes, yes. Because I know that's that. going to be a long conversation. Yeah. So um, one thing that, that I liked last week was um, I was at the Open Source Conference and there was a great talk by Ariel Waldman about um, encouraging – basically she was trying to tumble space exploration, which is, which is a wonderful goal. Um, and she um, gave this sort of barnstorming talk about all the things you can do to explore space um, without having to actually leave the Earth. So I was, uh, I was that, that was great to see. That, was that and we should round her up for a for a future show. Um, let's see what else was going on this week. There was um, some research published around um, how you um, how ideas spread. Um, and this the, by, the, who? by I'm just trying to look it up. Hang on. Okay, um, we'll keep going while you're looking it up. Um, but it's the, the what they what they showed was that the social flow was this the social flow? In no, here? no, this is this is something else. This is um, if you get ten percent of people to believe in something and um, not be swayed by other pe- by other people arguing with them then they can that that's enough to tip it such that um it becomes um conventional wisdom 10% wait 10% only if 10% you, of people yes if you've got committed opinion holders above 10% yes. um and they are not um so, you know pers- persuaded against that thing you know that they're convinced and will, will will stick to their guns um then that then that then you get to see a cascade, and it, and it heads above fifty percent. That was the, um, the 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 research finding they found. That and it's um, this is now what I'm trying to remember was is this a, is this a model? I think this is a computer model um, more than um, direct um, direct measurement. So they were, I think they were trying to look for direct measurement to, to, to support this. So it's it's similar to the the Watts stuff before. Um, but certainly right. that, that, that wasn't you know, an, an interesting one to look at. It would be, be good to see empirically if that's true. So it's well. similar to how Duncan Watts says ideas spread, Duncan Watts being yes. one of the researchers at Yahoo, for those who aren't familiar with the name. And what that says to me from a human standpoint is if, if you get enough people together who are, have, have convicted opinions about something, that's enough. It's, it's the people who are who – are, right. Which is which is interesting, uh, Liz. Do you have any point of view on that? You want to jump in? You know, I have no. Because <laughs> <laughs> it just sounds a little. It just sounds a little. I don't know. A little. It sounds like a okay, maybe. I just can't believe it. Kind of thing. And there's too many variables. The question is how sensitive it is to the assumptions you make in the model. That that's, that was part of it. I think, and the, the the thing it reminded me of was Duncan Watts um, modeling that that um, said what what doesn't you don't you have less importance about the influencers, but more about there being a large pool of people who can who can um, be influenced, who 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 are listening. Um, and that was that was the, the so he, he, that was his take on the whole um, tipping point thing was that it's not so much about finding people who are influential. It's, it's finding people who are open to ideas um, and, and then they will pass stuff between themselves, whatever the network looks like. 
So that it, it reminded me of that. So, but this is like this is I suppose in some ways this is like you know Gramsci's long march for the institutions or something. Say saying you can take over anything if you if you have enough committed activists, um, a small number of committed activists, because most people um, are not that committed. That, that, that's, okay, so now I have an opinion on it because I have just skimmed through the article. I didn't want to share an opinion until I'd actually looked at it. But from what I can tell, this is entirely theoretical. This isn't based yes. on actual people. Right. This, you know, and so, so far as I'm concerned, it's entirely unreliable. You know, it ends with saying that now they actually want to find social scientists so they could compare this to real people. <laughs> and you know, we have been, we have seen very little evidence that, that, that computer scientists are able to effectively model the, right. the complexities of human interaction in any kind of meaningful way. So this to me looks like, you know, a lot of PR around nothing. Around a small computer model. Yeah, and 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 right there, kind of sums up sums up our passion around tumbling. Okay, so so I've, so I've got I've got two more then to connect to that. So okay, the good. next one is um, uh, Gilad and, and Coase. I think Gilad's actually in the chat room. Um, post about um, how audiences. Um, vary between different news organizations and how um, looking at the flow of retweets um, and comments there, this is, which is, which is the, the opposite of that, of that, of that work. This is actually a sort of experiment that's based on analyzing a large amount of, of Twitter flows and, and then looking at how people influence each other. And it looks um, way more complicated than the model those the, that's showing in that, that um, other one is. But um, it, it's just interesting to see um, how many people follow different um, different organizations, um, but also how, how different news organizations trigger different numbers of clicks and different numbers of, of, of retweets. And there's actually um, different structures between them. Um, and are they, also, are they, are they, I'm just going to jump in and ask a question. Are they triggering different clicks because of something in design, something in content, something in the brand or the people. No, no, that this, is, this is just looking at tweets. So this is looking at. Oh, it's the, just, the, oh the I thought it was from, from the news article. Oh, okay. It's the other way around. Oh, okay. The other it's way the around. It's the from Twitter to them. So the people who follow the, the Twitter accounts of these news organizations and then either retweet, click or um, comment or share. And, and they, 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 and it's, you know, there's different, quite different structure um, between them. Interesting. So it's it, it's 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 fascinating one to read, but it, you know it, it is clearly more complicated. Um, you know, there's more stuff in heaven earth that was dreamt of in your computer models is, is what it comes down to, I think. Exactly. I was going to say this stuff is all more complicated, and you know, I see um, for our listeners, I see a theme through the links that have caught Kevin's attention this week, very much around the influence model and how things spread, and that's yes. probably because we, um, Heather, Kevin, and I are spending a lot of time thinking about this, but because we want to do a talk at South by on why influence as it's discussed today is kind of bullshit. So we'll be digging a little more into that. Are there any, other, and I want to dig into some of um, what, uh, you know, some of what Liz has, has told us that she's been learning in some of her work at, at RIT. So any other hot news topics? Well, there was, there was, there was one, one more related one, which was Jenny yes. Lehrer's column about, the social psychology of viral videos and why um, oh. Charlie bit my finger is the most popular video. And, and um, what are you saying? Because it's so cute. 
Because <laughs> it's emotional. And because right. what, if you actually look at the videos that spread, they are the ones that um, create an emotional response from us. Um, so this is um, from um, um, Jonah Berger at, at Wharton. Um, uh-huh. And he looks, at, he's looking at, his, his thesis is that um, things that give us a high state of emotional arousal are the ones that we then are likely to pass on. Um, and he says it is the similar thing he, he saw previously when he looked at the, the most emailed list of the New York times. Um, the, the, the stories are that get forward and, and shared are the ones that are um, emotion arousing, not informative. And which, you know, with, a very tumbly thing. It's a very tumbly thing. And, and maybe because I am built this way, I feel like going, <laughs> Duh. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, I mean, I'm, I am I don't want to, you know, shit all <laughs> over his, I'm cursing a lot tonight. I don't want to piss all over his research, but, but, you know, and Liz, feel free to jump in here, but, you know, we are human beings and it's always funny for me when I see research where, and, and we're built on emotion and it's just really funny for me when I hear certain researchers come out and go, yes, people like to share things that they feel strongly about or have deep emotions about as opposed to just raw data. Like, and I feel like going D-U-H, capital, capital, asterisk, asterisk, asterisk. It's the myth of homo economicus, right? You know, the idea that, you know, we all have these very clear rational things and that, that of course, we will maximize things based on this very computational model. But, but we don't do that. You know, we, we are, you know, as the, the popular books say, predictably irrational, but not predictably in a way that you can model Right. 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 Uh, yes, exactly. Hey, everybody. Hey, Heather's here. Hey, thanks for joining us, Heather. We're just sort of at the tail end of news. We're going to get right into one more thing and then sort of jump in deeper with Liz. Yeah, I mean, you obviously, as, as a professor, Liz, you live more deeply sort of bumping up against a lot, a lot of this. We can make this all practical. And I guess as the social and the scientist parts of people sort of knock against each other, it, it's just always fascinating to me that some stuff that's on the more social part of the social scientist side, people are surprised about, like you said, like the irrational part, <laughs> you know, uh, and I, right. and I, and I think what we're seeing a lot, right. Is, is businesses, organizations, engineers, any, any, you know, pick something trying as social media becomes this big, you know, way of the world, so to speak. Um, you know, the, the net itself, trying to figure out these, like, right, these very predictable ways, right? Who are the influencers? How do ideas spread? And um, it's, trying to make the emergent remain static? Not static so much as, as predictable, right? Well, I guess to I me, I, I'm equating predictable with static. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, it could be. But so we were, we were rattling through some of the recent, um, really interesting research that Kevin's found, but it, it, it's, it's, I feel like every day a a new piece of article or something comes out that says, this is the way things spread, or this is the way people behave. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Did you what guys talk that? about Dana's piece about uh, real we were, names? I was going to get to that. I wanted to throw one more in and then go back Just to the real names. Just about to get there. That's going to be a, a Sorry. Bigger. That's okay. Um, no, so we can pull no, no, this no. into that one. That's why we want to. Um, so the, the last link of the week that I wanted to throw out was the event I went to um, on uh, Wednesday, I think it was, which was the Community, the Q- community Managers Roundtable. Oh, which, you um, went. Great. Tom, yeah, those Thomas tweets Knott- were awesome. 
What's the so, hashtag if people want to go back and look at them? Um, I, I just put the Storify in that collected them. Um, okay. It's um, It was CMTYSF. Right. Um, and it was Thomas Noll who we've had on the show interviewing um, four uh, professional community managers um, that were uh, who, um, Jenna oh, Langer okay. from Live Fire, Megan Berry from Clout, Maria Ogneva from Yammer, and Laura Gluhanich, um, who's at About.me. Um, and they were talking about the different strategies they use um, when they're interacting with people online and trying to, you know, bring them in and out of their company. That, that, it, it, was a, it, was a, it was a fascinating talk, and there's, there's a good set of tweets there to look at. Um, one that we highlighted was, or somebody highlighted, was um, Megan Berry of, of Clout saying how much she enjoys having arguments about whether you can measure influence, which was the... the, the Mm-hmm. The, the lead back into this and also into the um, the South by Southwest talk we're trying to uh, put together at the moment. That you all need to support in a big yeah, way. We, yeah, and we'll give you a URL this week. Yeah. <laughs> we, hope, we, we hope. We hope. We invite. Exactly. Yes. Okay. So so have we gotten Liz, Liz's take on influence? Just about to. Not yet. But let you want to do it from that. <laughs> <laughs> what's the what's the a- avenue in Kevin? You were taking lead. On, do we want to talk a little bit about the Google Plus stuff? I and wanted the to with anonymity. Um, the Google Plus anonymity, yes. Yeah, I think we sh- and and because Liz, had, you had told us that you've been doing a lot of sort of uh, delving into what's working and what doesn't in Google Plus and why from sort of that human perspective. So I think this is a good segue. Yeah, <laughs> although I am Ooh. not, I have not been paying attention to to any of the stuff about the anonymity. No pseudonymity because that's not the piece of it that interests me. So, um, so if you guys want to tackle that one first, and I'll just sure. stay very quiet. Well, just so we know, um, can I first find out what I is... can talk about the things I think. What? Go ahead. I do want to know what's the part of it that does interest you, so we know. Okay. Um, so I am really interested in how people are making sense of the information that comes through about the, you know, the the problems with the complete lack of um, collaboratively managed and created groups, which I think is really broken on a lot of levels, and about the as yet unrealized but really huge potential of Hangouts, which I think have done some really interesting things from an interface standpoint for video chat, but mm-hmm. which which are not being um, leveraged nearly as well, I think, in the Google Plus interface as they could be. So that's the stuff that's in my head none of Ooh. it has anything to do with pseudonyms okay okay so so maybe kevin just dip into it because i feel like it's worth mentioning uh, oh, yeah. it's an important thing to look at but then let's get into after that into liz's um passion well so the news roundup is that this this thing kicked off last week or the week before where they started throwing people off for not having real enough names and our, our own xenophrenia has been you know, talking about that a lot and, and loving that. But this week they managed to throw off um, Kalia, identity woman. Um, really? They, yes, of all people. The and person they managed who to... this is her life's work, they did that too. Exactly, yes. yes. Um, and sure. also um, Blake Ross, who's um, the guy who in- invented Firefox. Um, and they threw him off for some spurious reason. because For of inventing Firefox? Or for working at Facebook. Or nobody knows because they're not drunk. Um so that was so I've put I've thrown a couple of, of a few links in here. One is one is Dana's take on this, which is is as usual sort of thoughtful and, and, and measured. Um, and, and and about class and uh, marginalization. Yes. So she's yeah. she's saying um, 
trying to legislate this is an abuse of power on the part of the um, of the the host organization in this case Google, but she talks about um, Facebook as well, um, and also it is inherently spurious because. Um, Facebook's alleged real names, um, they were real names originally when the site was assumed to be a, a, an in-group of people you already know. That was the point. Yeah. It was the list. It was the Facebook from your college. Therefore, it was when everyone it was college. college. Yeah. Um, and there's been a presumption that, that that cultural thing transferred, but actually that hasn't been true for a while when it expanded out to everyone. And she said particularly the the marginalized um, will, be, will be using... Um, non-real names or real-sounding names that aren't quite them or nicknames, and this has been going on for a while. And she, did, as, as she interviews um, youth for her research, she she finds out that it's the um, the the minority youth, the black youth, who who will be using um, not not their own names on 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 Facebook um, much more than the sort of you know classic. Um, you know, preppies that 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 Facebook. And she said that about to. queer kids and yes. right, you know, right. Sometimes right. women. And did she say why? Um, because because they have the because they don't you know they don't feel the power they they, they feel it's the disenfranchised. You get yeah. to them. It's the disenfranchised. Um, and there's there was another great one from Eva at EFF who um, Randy Zuckerberg this week's um, said. Um, Yes, I want to have. abolish anonymity from the internet. Who's also leaving uh, Facebook right. this week to launch her own social media <laughs> to go and invade company. the internet and, and do that. Which case. is which is really she she's this is post baby maternity leave. She's done with the startup. I think that's what that is. Right, but she um, has a right to so. And but but also which is which is which, which is fine. But for her to say yeah. oh we, anonymity is bad. Um, Ava gave another great post. Ridiculous. On that. Um, and then well, the, I will say this: now that Randy's leaving Facebook, I'm more hopeful we could get her onto the show to actually ask her in person uh, why she said it. Yeah, she will. Yeah. She she would. Sure. Well, at Facebook, I'll tell you, she's supposed to be on uh, my gossip panel years ago when Twitter was launched. It was very early and young, and uh, she was the first person booked, other than Owen Thomas. And Facebook PR kicked her off. The, she wanted to do it, wouldn't let her do it. Yeah, well, yeah, that's what happens. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. uh, those PR people. What are you going to do? She knows she's so, going to get a lot of attention. Yeah. Um, and the, and right, the other so, one was 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 sorry was Kevin, my. Just I did. We want to get to, to Liz's uh, take on Google. Yeah, yeah no. So I just want to throw one more link in, which is my dot name is dot me, which is a great campaign site of that is a great campaign testimony site. about why they why they use different names online, um, and it, it, it's 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 definitely worth a look, and also yeah. a great place to, for you to testify if you if if you um I would like that. It's a it's a really well cool. done site, and it's really. Yeah. Uh, so it's a it's a campaign basically. Zinafrina, you'd be very interested in it. As yeah, if you want to follow also Zinafrina, Zinafrina with an X, who's a regular here in Tumble Vision, um, speaks a lot, very eloquently a lot on Google Plus about why it's so important to not have a picture or name or anything yeah. out there. Absolutely. So, so. on that note, uh, let's formally say hi, Liz. Hello. Um, I wanted to just give a little bit of your formal sort of background on who and what it is, who you are and what it is you, your passion in this space is since we okay. took the time. And then I just wanted to jump in um, for for our, our listeners. Uh, there's a couple of directions we're going to go in. But as you know, Liz is, a, you know, has been 
a very long standing professor focuser on you know social computing technologies collaboration online and also specifically social media and games you know not only does she teach and do research on social computing from a real humanistic for want of a better word people point of view she's also been a visiting researcher at microsoft research and organizes an awesome annual so symposium they do on social computing um and has produced i did not know this about you a citywide alternate arg about called mm-hmm. picture the impossible for rochester which you might want to tell us about and now you're you're developing a whole new large-scale gaming layer for rit's students um in the interactive games and media program and i know we can go more the sort of on along sort of the gamification lines and i definitely want we definitely want to jump into that but i'd really love to hear you like heather was talking about earlier what are some of your like real ahas and passion points about all these social tools and google plus and sort of you know the left right brains and what the engineers are focusing on versus all your years of expertise on how people actually use social tools and well, jump right in yeah, yeah so let's start with where you were watch. about the google google plus and the and the sorting information for people because it sounded like you had a real clear yeah well google plus for me has been interesting because it's it's been this it's 2004 all over again in my brain right it's been a really long time yeah. since i was excited about a new social environment there's been a lot of incremental change but there hasn't been anything since twitter where i've gone now that's Whoa interesting you know yeah. that there was this you know there was this moment for me with twitter when it first came out where i said this is this is a fundamental game changer and it, it was hard for me to articulate for a while while it why it was but my gut told me that it mattered and and i had the same kind of reaction when i first looked at google plus um but the problem is the more time i've spent with it the less enthusiastic i've gotten about it um and and part of it is a frustration because i see this potential and I see these UI mistakes that they've made that are just in, incredibly annoying you know so for me one huge problem with this is the inability to have to to, to to have basic boolean functionality in my stream by which I mean I want to be able to say look at my friends and my family but nobody else um, or I want to be able to look at everybody except for the people who have too many followers, right? Because, yes. you know, yeah. I mean, Gina Trapani is somebody that I absolutely adore. You know, she's someone I consider a friend, and I would like to put her in my circle of friends and follow her stuff. But if I do that, I'll never see anybody else's stuff because so many people comment on her post. They all you know, I put, the um, there's, yeah. a, there's a plug-in that I installed, and I wish I could remember the name of it, exactly because of this and it basically only shows you the first line of everybody's post with a little red number at the end of how many responses so that you can kind of pick and choose and then only look at one comment first and not have have to to... plug in you know it it, it should be something that's that's basic functionality in here and it's the kind of thing that make people look at it i don't know if any of you saw when Miriam scoble sort of dropped in for a few days and then said forget this i'm going back to facebook and i thought you know there are going to be a lot of people who do that because because the the mix 
adopting of the Facebook idea of, you know, grouping people together and following your friends and the Twitter model of the, you know, the, the non-reciprocal following rather than um, friending creates some real disjoints, I think, for people in terms of how they interact with this. And I've seen so many people in the geek circle say, well, all you have to do is, and then, you know, give this long list of, well, if you just do this and then you do that. And, you know, the reality is people take the defaults. They just do. And if it doesn't work with the defaults, then it doesn't work, you know. So, but but that aside, the one single thing in Google Plus to me that I think makes it fundamentally a game changer if they could do it right um, is Hangouts. Because I think Hangouts have turned video chat upside down in a really important way because every other tool up until now has required me to send an invitation to a person and, and, you know, essentially interrupt their flow. Say, come talk to me right now in the same way that a phone call will interrupt them and, and force that. And Hangouts instead are opening your door, right? It's sitting on your front porch. It's, for me as a faculty member, it's exactly like having office hours. You know, right. My door and people can drop in. But it's better than opening my door because I can make the door only be open to a subset of people. And that, to me, is really fascinating and really powerful. Um, and I will say, when I showed it to my 14-year-old, you know, he wanted a Google Plus, you know, invite immediately. Um, now, of course, because he's under 18, it would have been wrong for me to find any way for him to do that. So anybody from Google who's listening to this, he most certainly is not on Google+. Plus. You don't have to worry about that at all. If, however, he were on Google+, Plus, um, he might actually be using that now extensively instead of Skype for chats with his friends. And I think it, it, it fits the model for young people in a way that's really, really powerful. Um, The fact that you can sort of leave it open, leave it open as a window, that there's no implied reason to come in um, or no implication that you have to stick around once you're there. I think that's just so powerful from an interface standpoint. Um, Now, one of the things that they've done totally wrong on this is that, there's no easy way for me to see if my friends currently have Hangouts open, right? Um, when I go to Google+, Plus, there's a link on the right that says, you know, start a Hangout. But there's nothing under it that says, here's the Hangouts that people you know currently have open. Um, and that's, I think, you know, a poor design that when I right. log in, it would be really nice for me to be able to see, does somebody have one open? Now, I noticed that what they did do is that now when you click the start a Hangout button, they show you on that initial check your hair screen if somebody you know has one open. But that's the wrong place to put it. It should be right there on the main page so that you can sort of see whose door is open, who's inviting you to drop in. That's a good point. Yeah, to be able to... Yeah, there's 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 a couple of level, like, stuff that is not quite there with Hangout yet, but I I... I do think it's one of the the most exciting new things. And I like your analogy that it's hanging out on the front stoop because right now everything else we have is is much more um, either organized, right, like you have to schedule it, or it's way too flowy. 
it's a sort of somewhere in the middle, right? Somewhere where people mm. can 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 sort of jump in in the flow and then hang on. <laughs> not, I I'm trying not to and, say hang out. Right? And I just saw <laughs> in the um, in the chat room that Galad said, you know, this idea that that friends from people in the hangout can join, and that's actually been something that that I have found really interesting. And I there's good mm-hmm. and bad with it, right? So so I can start a hangout, and a friend of mine can join it. Um, you know, and people who wouldn't otherwise know each other can can interact, and that's great. But what I can do, and I'm I'm not sure everybody realizes you can do this, is that I can can add people to that hangout. So I can I can go to the invite button and I can invite all of my friends to now hang out in my friends hangout. Um, so it's kind of like going over to somebody's house and then like texting all of your friends and say, hey, you know, everybody come over, you know, Eloise is having a party um, without having to get Eloise's permission in order to do that. And I think that's not ideal from an interface standpoint. Um, you know, I I like that you can do it, but there ought to be a way to be able to to prevent somebody from inviting people into your hangout without giving yeah. your permission. You know, Liz, what I've noticed is some as someone who does shows, and because there's a lot of things I want Google Hangout to let me do, so I can do shows, which is what I've been wanting for years. But it, it doesn't. The assumptions in their design aren't that there's a host or a community. Heather, Assume, yeah. Heather, we can't hear you. Heather just went on beauty. All muffled. You were moving What's around. That? You just went all muffled. You were moving your mic. So start over. Just talking into the phone. Can you guys hear me? Yes. Now we can. Go ahead. Um, I'm saying, Liz, as somebody who hosts shows, which is what I do, and I've wanted something like Google Hangout to make shows. There's a lot of things it's missing, and number one, it's missing the assumption that somebody would host or tumble. So it's basically said um, we're going to create living rooms but not put them in anyone's house. There's nobody who lives here, really, because they don't let you have any control, for example, like you're saying, to let the person who starts the hangout say, yes, you can invite your friends. No, you can't. Like, there's no way you get to choose who you the camera's on, who it's not on. Everything is so up to everybody. Um, and, when, and my sense is if you don't allow somebody some kind of ability to control, and with that comes assuming people know how to or will, teaching them, showing them how to do it, then you don't – the quality of experience is decreased. I mean I think we see that with YouTube, another Google interface decision where they made it more difficult to create a hosted or tumbled environment. So the, con, the quality of the, of the comments you know, disintegrated, which they probably presumed was about anonymity. It's maybe one of the reasons they only wanted real names on Google+. Because the context of Hangouts – Unlike chat roulette is here's people and you know them or you could know them in, in, in theory. But I would think, I mean, something else I saw this week was there isn't actually any way to kick anyone out of the hangout. It no. seems That's to what have I'm saying. There's no that. assumption yeah. it's a living room or it's a it's right. a it's a feeder it's or a, it's a whatever. And, and um, this happened to Liza Sterling um, yeah. where someone was hassling her. And she, you know, the, the rest of them told them to shut up. But um, she, you know, escalated with Google, and their response was, "Oh, yeah, you should tell everyone to leave that hangout and join a new one, except that person." It's like, what, really? Um, yeah, that's well, like that. That it, it, it's it like IRC without mods. It's it's not good. It's yes. interesting to me though that you know you all are coming at it from a very sort of public hangout 
perspective, right? That, you know, and, and I often look at these less from the standpoint of sort of opening it up to the public and more from the standpoint of how does this work for the intimate network? How does this work for, you know, the, the close collection of friends? You know, what does this do right. for the interactions among people who know each other? Um, you know, I am one of those people who has a locked Twitter feed and, you know, under 100 people that I follow or that I allow to follow me, um, you know, and so for me, Twitter is a very, very different environment. You know, more of the um, what Clive Thompson uh, described as is, is um, social proprioception than than mass media in the way that a lot of people use Twitter. And so, I'm looking at Google Plus with a lot of that perspective, right? Which is, how does it work for me? What if I want to use it for office hours as a faculty member? What if right. I want, you know, we've started using it, actually. I noticed somebody mentioning MMOs in the in the right. chat line. We started using it in my guild, actually, for um, when we do group, you know, instance runs in World of can Warcraft. You, sorry, Liz, can you explain to people what a guild is and what an instant run is? For people sure. Who don't yeah. So, so you know, in games like World of Warcraft, um, there are usually uh, grouping, social groupings within the game, which uh, because there are many things that you can't do in the game unless you have, uh, you know, a other people to help you with it. You can only do so much as an individual in most MMOs and you need multiple people to accomplish it. Um, And a lot of people play these games as an excuse, really, for interacting with their friends. And so the guilds create a closed group environment for chat and interaction, things like that. Um, And in most of these games, there are activities you can only do as a group. Um, in World of Warcraft, they're called dungeons, and you need a certain number of people in order to be able to complete them. Most, uh, you know, most people who play these games use voice chat for coordinating when they mm. play these games. So tools like Ventrilo, tools like TeamSpeak are really common. Um, we've started experimenting over the uh, the past couple of weeks with using Hangouts and Set, which gives us the uh, the small visual in the corner as well, um, instead of just the audio. And it, it, it has a really interesting and meaningful impact on the dynamic of the interaction, one that I, I'm still trying to parse mentally, uh, but it's, it's much more intimate. It's much more of a sense of having the people sitting around a table. Yeah. Mm. I, you know, I was... I disagree a little bit, Liz, with that we were only looking at it from a public versus – I think you're right. We're, we we're, we tend to look at some of these tools from a you know mass open, if it's open to everybody, perspective as a default. But even if I invited what's you know seven of my other friends into a hangout right now, you still kind of – and it's an intimate private space. You still need that – to Heather's point, that orchestrator, the – Unless you all know each other very well and have always been in a guild together and kind of always communicated online, I can imagine bringing in a bunch of close friends where we usually meet offline, you know. And once we're all in this flat screen, two-dimensional world, making it work some, you know, and how the, you know, how roles will take over and maybe by default someone will take on the lead of starting to ask questions or manage the resource. But I think without some sort of features that help that happen don't you think it becomes a little bit of a tower of babel kind of thing going on 
Um, I mean, I haven't used it that much with in an intimate setting. So if it, if you've seen that it sort of works itself out, I've seen it work really well with groups up to five. I have not tried it with more than five people at this point, but with groups of up to five, I've seen it work really effectively. Um, that in the same way that that pure voice has worked for for groups of that size for a long mm-hmm. time. I mean, I've seen people saying, oh, we really need, you know, to be able to have more people in a hangout. And I'm thinking 10 people, you know, 10 people in a hangout would seem to me to, to trend close to chaos and difficulty right. in keeping track. So making them larger isn't interesting to me, but I think <laughs> the, you know, the size that they are right now, you know, has a lot of interesting perspective. I actually had a really interesting interaction with my mother, who's you know in her seventies, and my son, who's seventeen, um, and and myself, all in different houses at the time. Um, you know, with the three of us interacting. Now, the interesting thing about that. That is that he and I've seen this now happen with four different people um, in different hangouts. He got interested in something in another window, closed right. the, or hid the window, forgot that my mother and I could see him. And it was this <laughs> creepy sense of like watching him through his computer screen um, that that made me feel sort of icky. And I had to close the window because, I mean, he wasn't doing anything but writing code, but, but it was just very disturbing <laughs> to realize that he had muted the sound for whatever reason and had totally forgotten we were there. And I've actually seen now four people do this where because they're sort of running the hangout as a sort of process on the side, they mute the sound for whatever reason, and then they forget it's there. And you're essentially watching them through their computer without them remembering you're there. And that's, you know, that that would be me. I would totally be that kind of person. I'd start picking my nose. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, I would be that person. I would mute it and forget. That's fascinating. That's, that's a little study in and of itself, right? Yes, indeed. (laughs) You know, Heather, well, I you think we, I'm trying to remember who it was, Deb, but didn't we have yeah. someone on television who talked about doing a meeting because they co-worked, like they, they had a virtual company, and that they would sometimes just hold the line open, like for hours, they'd have meetings where they would just be yes. sort of together, either through video chat or just plain audio, plain phone. Well, yeah, I, I know people who've been doing that? that for quite a long time. Um the yes, first it was person. one of our guests on Tumble Vision who was describing just yes. keeping the line open all day, right. always on, and, you know geographically dispersed co-working kind of stuff. Yes. Heather, I have a question for you. I, I know that Simple Geo do that. They have they have an office in Simple Austin, one in San Francisco, and they have a they have a um, a large screen video conference open back and forth all the time so they can look into the other office and see who's there. Um and I've I know people have done this as as a a way of, of co working um over iChat for, for quite a while. But the oldest I remember was um, friends of mine who were at Stanford in the 90s who did this through CUC Me and where they just opened up CUC Me, which was the first like multi-weight um, audio, audio video chat um, and just left those open all day because they're on Stanford's network and can do that. And then they found they'd become an exhibit in a museum somewhere where, where somebody no had, had found this, this, this stream and put, put them all up there on a... Um, <laughs> the early cams, I mean, early on the web, there'd be like yeah. the coffee cam. Watch somebody's coffee yes. in that was, I remember, Yeah, the coffee cam, that Cambridge, guys. Yes. That was Cambridge. Yeah, that's right. Heather, what do you think about what Liz said regarding sort of how do you make these settings, you know, a place like Hangout work and be sort of intimate and connected 
with over five people or whatever. Well, I mean, that's sort of Liz, what I do live. So I've been wanting to have online platforms let me do it online the same way I can do it live. I think it's totally possible, but it depends on, I mean, in my case, it's a skill set I've worked on for a long time and I teach other people in these workshops called them presenting, but I do it in performances. You'd need a bunch more tools. Like you need to be able, one, and I think they've already done this with performances that happen to Google where a lot of the people can watch but not talk. So you need more control for who's hosting so that everyone isn't talking at once, first of all, or whoever just happens to talk the most gets to dominate, which the existing interface would do because as soon as you really talk a lot, you've got the the center stage, which is the same equivalent problem as having a standing mic at conferences. It's one of the things I try to interrupt at conferences where they'll just put a mic at the end of the of the walkway, because that's mm-hmm. going to filter the room for who's willing to get up and stand at the front of the room. Uh, and then whoever that is will affect who else will come and do it. And that's going to have a lot to do with what kind of conversation you get to have, what you don't get to have. And the intimacy so, comes yeah. from from the choice and the selection and the very conscious decision to try to make the environment be intimate. It's a it's an intention and the skill set to do it. But it's it's quite doable. I've done it with enormous rooms. And so one of the things that would be interesting that were that was sort of a leading question that I was giving <laughs> I was given to put you guys on this topic. One of the things that we talk about a lot here on Tumble Vision is that we, you know, now, if we are all living in these connected spaces, and yes, you can choose sort of these intimate, private, you know, intimate if we want to say in the hangout sense is five people or whatever. But how do we the whole concept of what we like to figure out here on Tomo Vision is how do we take the skill set that people like Heather and myself and Kevin and others, some of the community managers we mentioned have in this ability to sort of get people to connect and collaborate in larger groups and convince some sort of those, you know, scientific engineer types that it's not a one to many. There might be a step in the middle and maybe we need to do a little bit better of designing features and tools that enable us to scale some of these kind of online conversations so that it doesn't become, like you said, this, um, this issue with, you know, with that Marianne has when she jumps into Robert's circles, Scoble, you know, that you don't have that, that you can both be part of a larger group and a smaller group in the middle. And I think, like you said, there's no, the UI was missing binary choice. So, so what are some of these features I mean, so that we can do? Can I just ask practically, Liz, even from the stuff you've already mentioned, what do you think, what do you, do you think the likelihood is of, say, Google making some of those changes that you're seeing and recommending? Do you think that would happen? Already, before we go deeper into what else they could have. You know, I'm not the only person who's who's making these comments. I mean, you know, one obvious thing that I'm I'm you know quite quite honestly astonished that they haven't done at this point is finding a way to integrate uh, Google uh, Google Groups into this. You know, because I don't want to recreate all of these groups that I've already created. You know, I've got groups of people who are working together on projects, groups of people who, you know, are, you know, have a shared social interest. These are collaboratively curated groups that now I have to recreate. And, you know, circles at the moment are like, you know, groups in your address book. They're useful yes. only to you and to nobody else. Well, that, and everybody was... in the group has to recreate it. Right. Yes. That's the problem with the well, way. That was the design center. I mean, the, the, and the thing you were saying about it being useful for sharing amongst subgroups of people was very much what they were trying to build here. And the publicness was um, not the core of what they were thinking about. And, and certainly the, the feedback I've seen from several of the Googlers was, oh, we didn't realize that public case would be as important because when we tested it internally, that wasn't the case. And it's like, 
Yeah, Duh. that's why testing it internally doesn't work. But you know, but they're testing it externally now and they're seeing that. Um, right. But but you but you're right. You know, it was it was um, it, it came from Paul Adams, you know, research on the, the problem of. Um, of modeling context and that right. was that was the goal of this was to let each of us model our context in that and selectively Which is share fine, with different groups. But all yeah. of us have both personal contexts yes. and shared contexts. Exactly. And you know, the reality is that if you don't support and model those shared contexts, the whole thing becomes a lot less useful. So, right. you know, I'm still using Google Groups, you know, instead of you know Google Plus for sharing things with the development team on our game because it's ridiculous they don't know who else seeing it they don't know you know who else they can respond to that in and this is actually a big issue if i share something with a group privately and they don't know who else it has been shared with they right. don't know when they reply to it who else is going to see the reply and that's that's fundamentally broken yeah yeah and i suspect part of that is they have like two people on google groups and a hundred on um, plus but yeah you're right um they should that that's been a sort of corner project for Google for for far too long, considering how much people use it. So, yeah. So I think that I would love to hear if we've sort of jumped in on the Google Plus stuff enough for now. I I would love to hear about your current passion project, Liz. We'd all love to. You know, this new game you're designing, and and how and what you've learned really gets people to sort of participate, other than the popular gamification note of today which is badges so yeah and i don't even like the word gamification i no, mean if you want to break out in hives it's got this you know, <laughs> that's why I said just it, add okay. badges kind of you know magical <laughs> powder sense to it that wow. that makes i think anybody who's ever actually designed a game cringe because of you know course. game design is hard it turns out yeah um so 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 i'll frame it by saying that two years ago we ran this game here in rochester that we did collaboratively with the um uh local newspaper the local gannett newspaper the democrat and chronicle and you know the idea was we wanted to engage people more in the community um we wanted to get them to know more about the history of rochester yeah and so we we designed this game that that was an sort of an alternate reality game although unlike most ARGs it wasn't really about you know this deep backstory and rabbit holes and things like that there were okay so, sorry to interject here but Liz for people who don't know what an alternate reality game is this is a game where you're not on a computer am I right well, the computer may serve as a starting point, a place that you get some of your information or exchange ideas, but the game itself ideally, you know, takes place in the world around you. It's overlaid on top of your day-to-day activities. And so what we were trying to do is is really say, how can we build a game that gets people to interact with each other, that gets people out into the community to discover parts of the city that they've never seen before, but that also gives them things that they could do online. So we had casual games that people could play, but all of them had bits of history about the city, um, you know, little little kinds of 
of activities that, you know, they could they could really sort of learn something along the way that was a fun and interesting sort of thing. Um, you know, but then we also did, you know, weekly scavenger hunts through places like the local public market or the, you know, the the cemetery where Susan B. Anthony and Frederick Douglass are buried. And, you know, so, so basically engaging people both online and offline, you know. And, and how many people played, how many people actually played the game? We had 2,000 registered users in the game. Um, we, of those... Does registered a, mean that you just, like, signed up on a page, or does it mean you actually you went out and You signed up, but we, you know, this sort of goes back to that whole pseudonymity, anonymity thing. You had to either provide us with a phone number that we could use for verification, or you had to link it to your Facebook account. Um, you could be pseudonymous on the site. You didn't have to share your Facebook information on the site, um, but the interesting thing thing is we ended up with about a thousand people who actively played the game and did activities. Um, we had um, we had thousands of posts in the forums over a seven-week period that the game ran. We had not one incident of needing to ban a user or delete a comment in that seven weeks, and that was mm. with thousands of forum posts. Um, so, so that to us was a really interesting commentary on on you know the issue of anonymity versus pseudonymity because it certainly wasn't reflective of what the newspaper has seen in terms of comments on their website, as you can imagine. So, um, but what came out of that was a sense for us of, um, you know, what kinds of things work and don't when you want to engage people on a variety of different levels. And for years, I have actually been giving talks at conferences about this blurring of boundaries between virtual and real, between online and physical, um, and, and how, how interesting I think some of these things are, whether it's games or mobile. And so, when gamification started getting popular, it pissed a lot of us who were game designers off because, you know, it was this idea that just sign up for our badge service and, you know, we will make your website <laughs> into a game. Uh, and, right. and the reality is adding badges to something doesn't make it compelling. It just doesn't. Um, it's and, also and, assuming just one type of incentive and interest for what people want to do. Like and, and ego-driven... Yeah, yeah. And it's a purely extrinsic form of motivation in most most cases as well. And, you know, anybody who's done even a little bit of reading on motivation, you know, in in the past couple of years – should know that sticking a bunch of extrinsic motivators, a bunch of carrots on top of things, is, is not going right. to result in meaningful change in people's behavior. So, you know, what we did within our department, I mean, I teach in an interactive games and media department. We have 750 students, undergraduate students, uh, most of whom are studying game design and development, and um, many of whom come into school and, you know, really don't understand why we're asking them to do the kinds of things. We ask them to do. Yeah, you know, the designers don't want to take programming classes. The programmers don't want to take design classes. They've got this narrow view of what a game is based on the games that they love, uh, and they don't understand why they should have to do anything else. And this is normal, right? This is a normal developmental thing. Um, right. But it got us thinking about 
how in many ways the experience for the student is kind of a hero's journey, right? This idea that they come in and they know they have to slay a dragon. They've got to, they've got to graduate, you know, and get the pot of gold, which is the job. And they have only the vaguest sense of how they're going to get to the dragon. They know it's going to be hard. They right. don't know what's going to be hard about it. And they feel like all of those barriers along the way to get to the dragon are kind of arbitrary obstacles, right? Just things that people are throwing in their way to make their life harder. Um, what they don't know, but what we know is what anybody who's read a book like The Lord of the Rings knows, is that the journey itself is what's important. And it's not that piece of paper at the end. Um, And so we started thinking, what do games do right that school does wrong? Now, and, and there's actually a lot of things. So one of the things, uh, and, and when I say games, I should really say what do good games do well? Um, you know, one is they give you a really clear sense of progression towards a goal. You know, you know where you are on the map, right? You know how much further you have to go to reach your goal and what's going to be involved. School is terrible about this, right? You know, you don't really ever have a sense of where am I in this process? How, you know, am I an apprentice level or am I a master level in all of this? Um, but the other thing it does is, it, is it, it, it makes the linkages between the things you're being asked to do a little clearer. You know, I need to do these three quests in order to, you know, get to Can- this particular place. Well, if I could just for a sec ask you, you talked you talked a minute ago about how you end up doing a lot of talking about connections between the online world and the real world and what engages people, which I'd imagine is a broadly interesting question to people, whether they're already someone who knows what an ARG is or not. So here's a question. Is it possible to extrapolate from people who might have played the Rochester ARG stuff about what makes people engaged or is are you usually when you deal with gaming like this dealing with a self-selected population of nerds who are a certain kind of person anyway so you're really only hitting a certain slice of the general population in the first place absolutely not i mean first of all if you look at any of the research right now on people who play games um you know all of our you know these assumptions that people have that it's pasty-faced young men in their in their mother's basement you know are totally wrong the fastest growing area of people playing games is middle-aged women in fact but are those middle-aged women playing ARGs? Are they playing ARGs? Well, see, the problem is you don't need to – the problem is with labeling them, right? You know, ARGs have, have been labeled as this sort of really hardcore, you need to completely immerse yourself in it. It's all about this deep narrative. And um, you know, one of the things that we tried really hard to do when we did Picture the Impossible is to make it really accessible, to say you can play this just a little bit. You know, you don't have to go deep into the storyline. You could just go in and, in fact, you could do the crossword puzzle in the the weekly newspaper and enter in the the final answer piece online and do something to help your your faction in the game. And we tied well, the did, faction. Did, were you well, guys 
Go Were ahead. you guys able to find out who who did play? Like who the people were? Oh yeah, who did we play? have yeah, and and I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but there are a bunch of interesting things that we found out when we did surveys at the end. So um, it was more than fifty percent women who played. Um, we had um, we had hundreds of what looked to us like a single player, but what actually ended up being families that were playing together. Um, and I have um, I have I should have should have pulled together. I've got some really fabulous videos that some of our players did talking about how their family did things together, how they split up responsibility where one person would do the hard online puzzles and another would do the real world challenges. Um, but, but really the people who ended up playing our game were nothing like the stereotype of what a person playing an ARG would be. We had a lot of senior citizens who played um, as well. Uh, which was because they loved the fact that there was a piece of it in the newspaper. You know, we, so we, we, we pulled people in on levels that were very different from thinking of it as computer gaming. And we're trying to do the same thing really with Just Press Play, which is the project we're doing with our students. You know, the idea is that we want them, we want them to be more engaged in their environment. And that means their, the campus environment, the community environment, the online tools that we want them to be using, that, that everything we're going to do is not going to be about how can you earn badges. And none of it is really going to be what did you do in your class. All of it is going to be about trying to get them to engage in the kinds of activities and behaviors that we know and that, you know, that our alumni know will will end up making them happier, you know, and end up making them more successful as students. Yeah, I, th- I, I mean, I love the fact that it's about really understanding the the journey and what's happening to you emotionally at each step rather than just the 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 win at the end, right? I mean, in listening to you talk, the only equivalent of quote-unquote ARGs that I've ever played, and I was addicted to these. I used to go constantly when I lived in New York to scavenger hunts, right? There are organizations who describe, design these scavenger hunts. Some, sometimes they're ARG-like, sometimes they aren't, and it's all about your team going to places, interacting socially at said pub or location to get an answer to a question. So it's actually the interactions you're having along the journey that are the really gratifying thing, much more so than when you get to the place and you get the quote-unquote answer or the token or whatever you need it to get. And I would imagine, especially with undergrads at an age where some are more extroverted, some less extroverted, having a game as a structure that enables them to reach outside of a comfort zone and explore that space is a big plus, right? Right. And a lot of the things we're going to build into the game are things that will gently encourage them to build connections with other people that there would just as in a game like World of Warcraft, there are going to be things you can only achieve in the game if you if you are involved with other people. One of the achievements we're talking about putting in is one called uh, No One Gets Left Behind. And the idea behind that is that um, 
typically we know about 15 to 20% of our freshmen will fail one or more of their programming classes during the first year. We're going to do a game-wide achievement that if we can get 90% of our freshmen to pass their programming sequence, everybody in the game gets the achievement. Um, which now creates a really interesting and what's incentive. the what's the achievement that they're going to get what do they get so so in general the achievements will will create both badges that they can show off um, you know and sort of create as part of their collection um, it'll also give them points within the game which will unlock access to other kinds of interesting puzzles do you get alcohol or content. sex for for any of that <laughs> No, no. Now because you're back to the college, whole extrinsic honestly, thing. <laughs> honestly, if I'm in college, like that's what I'm saying about the self-described nerd thing. Because I mean, RIT is a tech school and yeah, programming yeah. classes. I mean, I, as someone who played a varsity sport at a college, you know, um, I played a game two hours and a half hours every day called hockey. Uh, like I would go on whatever an occasional scout trip, but I'm just thinking there's a lot of people who. I'm not saying there aren't tons of middle-aged women playing solitaire or Farmville or Bubble or whatever social games. I'm sure they're the fastest. I can't believe you know all of those. <laughs> but I, I, I am a little bit wondering about this idea that um, that that's going to be enough. Like that that's the reason you would. I mean, I think people are socially no, driven. It's, it's not. But I think what what we're going to try to do is do a balance that says that there so, – so, in fact, there will be some extrinsic things layered into this. For example, um, people who get to a certain level within the game will, will get to go to a party at the end of each quarter kind of thing. Um, but that's, that alone, this gets back to the whole intrinsic versus extrinsic. If we can't build a game that is fundamentally fun to play, then, then we did it wrong, right? And if the only reason they're playing it is because at the end they get some kind of, you know, specific tangible reward, um, we're not accomplishing what we're really trying but, to accomplish. But my fundamental question is, even if it is fun to play, if the game you'd rather play is football, do you even want to play uh the game is what I'm saying. Like, like, are are these things useful in non-tech environments, non-geek environments? Ah, uh, so that's gonna, you know, that's and and yes. So the and are the lessons we're right learning to... from geeks extrapolatable, if that's a word, or are they and just I would, worthwhile I... for geeks? No, I would argue that, you know, we're designing content that's specific to our students right now, but, but there are lots of interesting examples out there already about how games can be used in a variety of learning environments. Um, and picture the impossible. I think you're stereotyping gamers there as well. I think, you know, I think the football players all, also play video games. Indeed. Football video games. indeed. But do they play an ARG is what I'm saying. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, yeah, they might play Grand well, Theft Auto. All, First of all, we're not calling this an ARG, and in fact, this is not an ARG. Um, you know, and it's why when I described it, I didn't describe it. You, picture the impossible was an attempt at an ARG. Um, this is not an ARG. This doesn't have some kind of alternate reality storyline that's layered on top of the real world. This is, you know, what Jane McGonigal talks about as a gaming layer. Right. right. This is, you know, this is this is a layer of of sort of fun placed on top of day to day life. And and 
as a result, yeah, it's we think this is something that's interesting to anybody, not just to somebody who, who describes themselves as a gamer. Uh, and certainly Picture the Impossible showed us that, you know, this works for everybody from 10-year-olds to grandmothers. People like to have fun. I don't know. What do you mean by spoonful full of sugar, Heather? I mean, I don't think it's about helping people to do stuff they wouldn't, you know, something to go down easier. I think it's a way of, I mean, the way that I'm hearing it, it's a way of of, um, adding a a fun challenge to your daily life or 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 a, a... a, a, a doorway to walk through to find something you wouldn't normally do because some people aren't as exploratory as others, perhaps. It, it makes it easy to explore or be maybe more adventurous than you normally would. Is that, is that necessarily a bad thing? Is that, I mean, I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm merely asking well, the question because I think they're useful questions to ask about the assumptions in it, like who who will do, who is doing it, like literally who's doing it, and is it are the lessons around social engagement in them useful outside of that population? That's and that's in fact the reason that we're doing this as a research project rather than as a startup, right? Um, so this is <laughs> right. funded by Microsoft Research. Um, part of what is involved in it is a lot of assessment, a lot of interviewing the people who play, a lot of looking at what they actually do, about trying to really understand the experience. And some of this goes back to the stuff we talked about, you know, earlier in the show, which is just looking at the data, right, doesn't really tell you a lot about the stories behind it. You know, the data, the quantitative stuff can tell you what people did, but it's... They can't tell you why. That's what I want to know. I want to know why people played in the first place. That's what I want to know. And actually, you know what, I will will email to... Who should I? I don't know if I should email Andrew. I don't have it right off, right available to me at the moment. But the last challenge that we did in Picture the Impossible, because we did weekly individual challenges, is we asked them to to create a three to five minute video on how they had pictured the impossible as a part of the game. And we got these incredible, incredible videos from families, from disabled people, from senior citizens, from, you know, so many unexpected players within the game talking about how the game had been transformed for them. And I think for me, that was what inspired me to want to keep doing this in other environments. And it certainly wasn't just, you know, teenage gamer geeks who were who were a part of that one. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I design, design quote unquote, I mean, that's a strong word, a game like this, uh, when I launched the downtown info center after 9-11 for New York. And mm-hmm. it was it was really about getting, you know, ter- I guess our demographic wasn't so much age-wise, like gamers versus older people, as it was sort of business people, tourists, people who live there to sort of understand what's coming back to life in the, in lower Manhattan versus what isn't. And I, I probably have a, a, a soft spot in my heart for anything that does this around like cities or universities or places because of that. Because you see people sort of like – at least it's a self-selecting group because people who are willing to quote unquote play the game are ones who like to sort of uncover and learn about their physical environment and interact with store owners and other people like that. So I don't know if it's to Heather's point, if it can you extrapolate to everyone, but it's fascinating to see how people sort of come alive when they're challenged to ask. It's why people like games, like intellectual questions or spatial questions, or when is the store open until, or go find this 
kind of food that's in lower Manhattan or anything like that. I mean, it doesn't have to be a fancy, again, it can be a quiz or a scavenger hunt. It doesn't have to be a very highly, you know, coded game for people to enjoy it. I mean, today we probably would have done it on cell phones, but we couldn't back then. So it's, 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 to me, the fascinating thing is to observe people interact with people they don't know through games that are in like ARG like format, right? That's the thing that I love to see. Like you'll get people who wouldn't normally interact with each other, jump into each other and, and start interacting. And it'd be interesting to take whatever research comes out of doing this game, Liz, to see do, how do people take the interactions they have either online or offline and does it go anywhere after that? Does it make their online interactions deeper versus offline? Do they end up connecting with people they don't usually connect with? That kind of stuff. Yep, right? and that's exactly the kind of thing that our assessment researchers are going to be looking at. Yeah, it'd be really interesting to look at it like also in like groups of if they didn't know each other online or they, you know, all the various permutations and combinations, right? That, well, that's uh, what it gets fascinating. Yeah. Right? When you, when you have the, the information, you come back and let us know what you learned. And I did just post the, a link to the playlist um, of Great. the player videos from the game cool. and they're, they're ordered kind of in the order that, that I think they're particularly fun to watch because they give you a really nice, so, you know, the first, the first, you know, six or seven videos, none of them are longer than five minutes, um, but, but they give you a really interesting range of the kinds of people who played and the kinds of experiences they had. Um, so I feel like I, we're probably in your wrap-up time. Am I right, Yes, Debs? yes we Feels are. like a good moment since we're talking about getting to hear what happens. You can, we're going to have links uh, up on the site, all of Kevin's links that he mentioned earlier, uh, plus and news, including Liz's stuff to the videos to show you what people liked out of the Picture the Impossible game in Rochester. And some more stuff about Liz. And is there anything else you want to let people know this week, Deb? Oh, God, you caught me off guard. Um, anything Oops. that I want people to know? Uh, Didn't ask Deb. Let's move on to Kevin. Kevin, anything uh, else you want people to know? We'll give Deb a minute. Um, the, the thing to say would be to look out for our South by Southwest um, proposal when that goes up and, and keep an eye um, because the deadline's tomorrow and I'm not sure when they actually go live on the site, but keep an eye out for that and, and um, discuss it and share it and, and vote it up because that will mean we actually get to, get to go to South by and talk about this in public. And then have a Tumble Vision meetup and have as many of our former guests, hopefully including Elizabeth, she'll be there. Come join this big – because we'll run it like a giant tumbled conversation. This will not be us talking at the room from the front of the room. That will be the nice thing about being in person. So, Liz, will you be at South by Southwest? Probably not. Bummer. Probably not. Sad. I'm sorry. Right. <laughs> well, you don't have to end on a downer. We'll we'll see you again soon. We'll recover. We'll recover. Is there any oh. other? Uh, so the, the current project. What's the URL of what you want people to check out from you? It is at play.rit.edu. Wow, you got play. That's nice. Play. We did. Rit.edu. Liz uh, is a professor, right? In RIT, yep. social computing, and Deb. Any any particular mentions other than our. Our, uh, our South by Proposal, and everybody don't forget, on iTunes, please do review or give your comments, including critical feedback of the show, because that's another way that people find out about the podcast. 
Deb, anything else you want to Nothing, nothing specifically about moi. There'll be more in the future. August is my doing research month. I'll have more stuff to announce in September. Doing research. Uh, I am going to be speaking at WordCamp on the 14th of San, uh, August in San Francisco. And then I'll be doing Unpresenting, which I'm happy to announce just sold out on the 15th to mostly automatic WordPress creators. But the 16th, there, I mean 17th, there are slots. Unpresenting.com if you want to learn how to tumble. I've got some more slots for people to come, which would be great. I will be doing stand-up at the Punchline in San Francisco on the 21st and probably another show that's pretty much more interactive that will happen. I'm going to be in San Francisco the rest of the month. So guess what? The three of us will probably get together in a room. It'll be <gasps> me and everybody. We should really have a special recording of that. It doesn't happen very often. No, <laughs> rarely. Producer Andrew Hazlitt in his beloved Baltimore, where he's soon to be a paid tumbler. I just want to want to chronicle your journey here, Andrew, from being an early beloved participant of the show to its producer to now paid tumbler in Baltimore. Very mm-hmm. awesome, very awesome indeed. And Liz, thanks for coming on and uh, being a good sport about my. Uh, you know, someone's got to ask the questions. I guess you know. Absolutely, not attacking. It's form of love. Your professor. I, it didn't Anna. feel like an attack. It felt like absolutely reasonable questions. Always happy to hear them. Aw, what a nice attitude. And everybody, how's the how's the chat room been? Kevin, sorry I haven't been able to see it tonight. Who's there with us that we I feel like it's the romper room moment of the show where we say okay. goodbye. I'll give you our romper room moment. We have Zena. We have some of our regulars. We've got Xenophrenia. We've got Myers, you know, whose every third word is something I have to look up in the dictionary. <laughs> we have, we have Luzi Speak. We have a uh, Gilad. Luzi Speak's in the chat room. I love. Uh, I'm sorry. I know. We have Gilad um, Lotano will be our guest in a couple of weeks. Gilad, you joined us? Awesome. Yes, he did. So and Patterson. And Patterson. Patterson jumped in and out for, or is still here. I'm, I'm looking. We had a few new people. I'm looking for our new people. Most important. Most important and new people, yes. Everyone else out there who's listening, we want to thank you all. Um, this been episode, I can't remember. I'm going to get 75. 75. 75 Tumble Visions. We freaking rock. We'll be back next week with, I think, Jean Russell, right? The Nature Girl, Thriveability. Yes. Yep. Uh, is her project, her main project. She also does a lot of facilitation, and I will share on our blog in the next week if you want to pay, uh, uh, hook into it, uh, something I posted on Google+. If you want to get, I'm making a Tumble Vision circle, so please heads up me on G+, and I'll add you into that circle, which I'll share when I'm able to, when Google+, listens to Liz or whoever and makes that stuff easier. <laughs> uh, so basically, I uh, I had an interesting meeting or conversation with with Jean, who'll be here next week, and Kate Edinger, who we all do, they do forms of facilitation. When Kate does it, patients are dying in hospitals. She's an ethicist, and I do it as a comic. But uh, there's a nice post about emotional user interface ideas, most of them from Jean, um, that my guess is we'll dig into a little bit more next week. Like, how do you let people know you're there with them without a plus one or like? Like, why are those our only options? Are there other ways to give? Like, she has all kinds of little tricks and things she does when she facilitates a meeting to help people engage and listen to each other. And how can we make some of that stuff work in these environments? So I like that. Uh, that's what I think we'll get into more and be a nice segue from Liz, because I do think with an environment like Google+, 
it makes us more conscious that we need to be able to do some of this stuff because it has, I think it makes clear that potential of, of, oh my God, I'm in a room with a lot of people and it's up to me to host it. Here I go. It's like we have a new thing called like blogging without bloggers. That's what it feels like to me. So I want to just close up this week. We'll have an after show. Some of them will hang out on Google Hangout, hopefully. Um, I can't this week. And we'll see you back here again next week. Good night, good people.